The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, we are all but left with no breath and awestruck, and it's wonderful. And this is cause to pause and give thought to it, Selah. Say y'all ever thought about there's never been an identical sunrise, it's so wonderful. Wrapped in jackets of amber and stands with universe in hand and our tears in bottles. He collects them. Lined in perfect symmetry across the shelves of the throne room. Next to full and accurate account of every electron everywhere and every follicle of hair on our head. Modern psychology would call that obsessive compulsive. That's because they ain't got the bandwidth. I call it love and it's wonderful. Would we with ink the ocean fill and the expanse of the sky be stretched in parchment? Would we line with canvases the walls of our heart's apartment? Any attempt to capture the image would fail miserably and everything is love due to me is such a beautiful eulogy and we can be in awe. See, this is Pastor Chris, and I want to tell you Happy Easter from an amazing place. I'm on the Sea of Galilee, and today I get to teach you uh, from John chapter 21. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, and I love nothing more than getting to teach you a passage from the place that it happened. This passage, it does a lot for me. It increases my faith. It does so much, but you know the main thing it does for me? Every time I read it, it makes me hungry. Now, for you, maybe you hadn't read it recently, but if you read it well, it'll make you hungry. Now, most of you are going, Pastor Chris, everything makes you hungry. You get hungry when you just drive somewhere because you pass the barbecue place. Yeah, I get it. I, you know me, that's part of my struggle. But this passage, I'm telling you, it, it prompts me to ask one of those questions like you would on a cooking show when you get a great chef and you want to ask him like, what's the best meal you've ever had, right? And, uh, and you expect just some amazing story. And often what they tell you is less about the meal and more about the person that made the meal. I can't wait to get to heaven and sit down with a guy named Peter and ask Peter, hey, Peter, you had some pretty cool meals, right? Uh, I mean, the Gospel of Luke tells us in Luke 4, you're off with Levi the tax collector. By Luke 7, you're having a meal with Simon the Pharisee. Now, those are two really different people, right? A few chapters later, you have a meal with 5,000 of your friends, that was kind of a miracle, happened just on a mountain over here. Um, you, you have a meal with Zacchaeus, you had a meal in the upper room. Uh, you had, in fact, you had this amazing meal. Um, it was a little bit lopsided. You guys were hiding, you locked the doors. Jesus comes in, he appears to you for the first time, right? And what's he say? He says first, like, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Look at my hands and feet, right? First few things he said. And then he goes, do you guys have anything to eat? <laughs> and you wonder like, is like being resurrected, does it just make you super hungry? Or was Jesus trying to make a point? I don't know. 
Maybe one day we'll find out. My guess is Jesus knew whether he was hungry or not, that eating with his disciples was really, really important. And so what amazes me in this story is that these disciples, when they were walking with Jesus, they usually couldn't figure out what he was saying. They kind of walked around like a bunch of numbskulls. Jesus loved them, but they, they didn't ever seem to get it. And we often will say, after the resurrection, they got it, which is true, but not right after the resurrection. In fact, what we know is that when Jesus appeared with them in that little room, and then he told them, he, he breathed on them. And Luke, it said, he breathed on them. He said, uh, he gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Now, you would think at that moment, they'd be like, we got an assignment, right? It's like Tom Cruise in the Mission Impossible shows. They give him a, here's your assignment. This is what you need to do. I'm sending you just as the Father sent me. Seems pretty clear to me. What did the disciples do? Nothing. Nothing. They didn't do anything. They didn't know what to do. They sat around. They sat around. They sat around some more. And what we hear in John 21 is that about seven of them were together. They still weren't doing anything. They weren't trying to figure out how to start churches. Literally nothing was happening. And in John 21, Peter says these words that literally change history. Peter goes, I'm going fishing. The other six people were like, all other six disciples were like, all right, we're going with you. Now we hear that story and we think they just got up and they went fishing. Well, you gotta remember, they were in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem to Tiberias, where I am here at the Sea of Galilee, that's 91 miles. <laughs> so can you imagine going down the road going, all right, we're going fishing, we just gotta start the 91 mile walk. They're walking 91 miles. Can you imagine, you're walking 91 miles, all you can think is I can't wait to be fishing. And I get why they wanted to go fishing. When I mess up, I often want to go do something that I'm good at, right? So if I'm going to go play golf, I'm lousy at golf. I don't feel so good about myself after I play golf. I feel a little better if I go preach at Ecclesia because I'm better at preaching than I am at golf, right? Um, if you're a really good golfer and a really good preacher, I just want to tell you, I don't think that's fair. But Peter, he'd blown it. He'd absolutely blown it. He denied Jesus. He didn't feel good about himself. What do you think he wanted to do? I want to go do something I'm good at. I'm a good fisherman. So let's go fishing. So they get there and they fish and they fish and they fish. They've been waiting. They've been talking about it for 91 miles. We're going to crush it when we get to the Sea of Galilee. We're going to catch so many fish. And what happens? Nothing all night long. And then they hear right here in these waters. They're about 100 yards out. You could still see the boat. You could call out to it. They hear this guy tell them, throw the net on the other side. And they're thinking, what does this guy know? And who is this guy? And they throw the net on the other side. And you know what happened. They knew that wasn't just a guy. That, that net was so filled with fish. It tells us that Peter had a shirt off while he was working, what a fisherman would do. And he threw his shirt on and he went swimming into Jesus. And, and then Jesus told him, get some fish. He went back and he got the fish and it said he counted 159 large fish. Now hear this Ecclesia, the first thing the disciples learned about the resurrection was that if you wanna do things on your own, you can fish 12 hours, zero fish, right? Not very effective. One minute with Jesus, 159 large fish. I don't know what you're doing in your life, but my guess is, if you'll live into the resurrection, the story of Easter, what we're going to learn is we're more effective if we do it with Jesus.
Jesus does the most loving, caring thing. And he pauses, he takes the fish, he cooks it over a fire. He spends quiet time with Peter and the disciples. And he does what Peter desperately needs because Peter's blown it. So Peter, he wants to go do something he's good at, right? He wants to distract himself from his failure, just like you or I would do. If you fired off an email saying things you shouldn't, you were just, you weren't present, you weren't thinking, or you said things to somebody you wish you could take back, or you blew your temper with your kids, and you realize they did something wrong, but you were way more wrong than they were. You, you may blow it, you may feel this sense of pain and shame and sorrow for what you've done, and the instinct is I'll do something I'm good at just to distract myself. But what you really need to do is deal with the pain and the shame and the sorrow and the guilt. And that's what Jesus was offering a chance for Peter to do. You know he must have sensed it when he could see Jesus off in the distance as he's carrying the fish over to him. He's carrying the fish to Jesus and he sees the fire and he smells the smoke. You know, the last time Peter saw Jesus at a distance, right? He was, he was being court-martialed. He had people around him questioning him. And Peter hung off at a distance. And it tells us as he, as he was being warmed by the fire, he denied Christ again. Jesus not only cooks for Peter, he makes him this beautiful breakfast. And he turns to Peter and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter replied, of course, you know, I love you, Lord. And in three different ways, Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, take care of my sheep. Ecclesia, my suggestion to you today, whether you sent off a hostile email or you've lost your temper with your spouse or whatever the thing is that you know, if you can't come up with 10 things that you've blown it in the last year, in the last month, some of us in the last week, this is what I'd love for you to do today. We do the same thing that Peter and Jesus did. Jesus is asking, straight to you, he knows you by name. Do you love me? As we worship, as our brother propaganda inspires us and calls us into the resurrection story, as I get to open the scriptures with you today in person, as the band leads us in song, what I'd like for you to do is let your heart go to those places and say, Lord, where have I failed you? Because I wanna get rid of shame because this is what I know. If we live in shame, we'll live in distraction. We'll be out there catching nothing. We won't be effective. But when we lean in with Jesus and we follow his call to take care of his sheep, feed his sheep, take care of those he loves, we find that we're the people we're made to be. It wasn't just the resurrection that changed the disciples. It was when Jesus took time to make clear to Peter that the resurrection changed the reality of his shame. And when Jesus recreated that environment where he had denied him three times, and instead he had the chance to affirm his love three times and to be given clear instructions, take care of my sheep, Ecclesia, we're those people. As we join our voices together in song, as we celebrate God's grace and goodness today, will you join with me now as we worship? Well, it's the perfect picture, the space and time splitter, the Augustan calendar plumb line. We all know what common era means, please. It's the I'm telling you, this is epic. Wait for it. I'm finna fix it. The promised neck crusher with a bruised heel. It's so real. 
the image the law was picturing and prophets trying to concoct words about breathing word, get it? Breathing word, word that breathed the breath of life who invented both, whoa, word. The start and stop it, it stays stunting like my daddy. Homie, the great I am's great I told you. The system flipper over, the overture you missed. The back is the front, homie, left side up. The greater and higher jihad, the earthly kingdoms are pitiful. The second in rank, equal in essence, laughing at demagogues, cause they're a fraud. But for the joy that was set before him, that this kingdom works backwards. The ruler serves, servant king, suffering servant, sit with that one. The endless and eternal, I owe you one big bro. The savior, irrespective of rank, race, or gender. The incomparable good news, the I'm all you got, partner. The good luck without me, bruh, bruh, but it's all good, just smell don't bother me. I love you. The sound that is person and came and camped with underlings whose light and life was the light and life of all human beings. The yeah, I'm that guy. The I'm that dude. The I'm period. The second person. Fully God. Fully king. Him. The death defeater. The I'll take that and raise you one. The raised one. The living and breathing liberty bell that'll never crack. The warning. The dawn of the last morning. The I'll be right back. The I'll deal with you later. The I am not at all shook in any way by Satan. Does a painting scare a painter or does he just destroy the canvas? The until then, I'm going to wait right here waiting for these chumps to prop my feet on. And when pops say I'm on my way, scooping my dime up. Let's roll, girl. The one in three in one. All sufficient son of Elohim. That's Jesus, Yahshua, prophet, priest and king. God bless you, Ecclesia. Happy Easter. He is risen. It's a gift. And um, if, you, uh, if you didn't notice, I got the coolest Easter gift ever from some Ecclesians, uh, the Barnes family, uh, Marcus and Andrea. Andrea is Venezuelan, and so they have gifted me the coolest uh, Jose Altuve jersey uh, on the planet. Uh, this is... Uh, it's a beautiful reminder uh, of what we get to do as we stand with our brothers and sisters in Venezuela and that Easter matters, not just here, but it matters to our brothers and sisters that are suffering in places like Venezuela or Gaza or any place where people are suffering. If you haven't been with us in recent weeks, I wanna encourage you to listen to the podcast uh, because in recent weeks we've invited you into some specific ways that our church is standing with brothers and sisters in Venezuela and it's a hard and challenging thing. Our church is better because we have Venezuelan Ecclesians. I don't know if you've noticed, but our Astros are a lot better because we have Venezuelan Astros. Um, Jose Altuve hits grand slams like they're just breakfast this season. He just gets up and goes, I think I'll hit another one today. And he does. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we're reminded that we're all one people. Um, if you were here, hopefully at the beginning of the service, hopefully many of you made it into the room in time to hear some of the teaching from the Sea of Galilee. And I get to teach you this passage from John 21 that I believe is just the most beautiful passage where John uh, experiences, uh, he tells the story of Peter experiencing forgiveness as he eats the food that Jesus made for him. And what I'd like to do today is invite you to try to feel what it would, like, would be like to be Peter, to have failed in a really public way. I don't know the last time that you felt that sense of paralyzing failure. 
I don't want to deep up, dig up maybe your deepest uh, shame experiences at the Easter service, but maybe all of you could at least identify with the time in your life that you've done something like what I've done. Anybody uh, in recent years double booked their schedule and no-showed on somebody? Anybody else or am I just the one, right? And uh, you know, what, you wrote it down wrong. It's harder when you're a pastor because sometimes that can be like a wedding. You're like, I thought your wedding was at six. You're like, no, it's at five. <laughs> okay, tell everybody to have a cocktail. I'll be there as soon as I can. <laughs> It's not, it doesn't feel good, right? And you, you have these moments where you're just like that. Somebody calls you and they're like, they're supposed to meet. They're like, I'm here. Where are you? And you're like, I blew it. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Or maybe in your esteemed academic career, you had the experience of having to go to a professor and saying, I really wanted to take your test. <laughs> like I really, I thought it was a good idea. I planned to do it. I was just in bed. <laughs> you didn't bring it to my bed, so I didn't, right? And you have these moments where you're like, I could either tell this big lie that he or she is going to know is a lie, or I could just say like, I, I blew it. And if you're like me, like literally I've had to tell a professor that, I can feel, it's been 25 plus years, right? I can feel that pain in my gut of like, oh, I don't like to blow it. We watched, if you care about golf at all, you probably watched last week. Some of you weren't at church because you were watching golf last week. <laughs> Tiger Woods like had this new mountaintop experience, but it wasn't that long ago, right? And everything you heard about him was about how he blew up his life and he blew up his marriage. And I remember hearing him on TV just say, I brought all of this shame on myself. And it was spoken with such sorrow, right? Many of you, uh, years at Taft, I'm never doing it again. I made the mistake years ago of asking how many Ecclesians had spent a night in jail. Trust me, you don't want to know. You really, you don't want to know. It's, it's depressing to know. It's not a good influence on the kids. But, but, but suppose, because I know some of you are around in the Taft days and you raise your hand, suppose you do have a mugshot somewhere, right? Imagine what it feels like to be Tiger Woods and it's like, Every station you turn it on, you, you see your mugshot, right? Your lowest moment. And then imagine with me what it would be like to be Peter, who bragged and bragged and bragged and bragged and bragged some more about how he was going to crush it when the time came. He kept telling Jesus, when things get hard, I'm your guy. You can count on me. And then it got a little hard. You know what Peter did? He tucked tail and run. He was scared, he cracked. So imagine you're Peter and you failed in the most epic way, our Lord and Savior, and you come to this moment where you realize, this is actually amazing. Jesus really is fully God and fully human. He really did conquer death, but then you realize there's gonna be this thing like the Bible and it's always gonna tell the story of your mess up. Can you imagine if your mess up was in the Bible? Everybody reads it, everybody reads about your mess up, right? And for Peter, it had to just be like, oh, that hurts. It hurts. So part of what I want us to lean in on today is that that same forgiveness that brought Peter from this place of utter shame, he was paralyzed by it. That same man experienced the love and grace and forgiveness of God in a way that radically changed him. He became the person that Jesus named him to be, the rock that he'd build the church on.
And I believe that in the midst of all of your failures, right, the people that you double booked and no-showed and worse, much worse, than in all of it, God's like, I've got a plan for this. I'm gonna bring good out of this. I remember being a kid reading this passage in John 3. We've studied it often in recent weeks, this whole chapter, this beautiful chapter. He's talking to a guy named Nicodemus and he offers this verse that's the most well-known popular verse in the scriptures, John 3.16. And the next verse in John 3.17, he says this. He said, here's the point. When Jesus says things like that, it's good to pay attention. He said, let me give you the point. Here's the point. God didn't send his son, Jesus is saying me, into this world to judge it. Instead, he's here to rescue a world headed towards certain destruction. Now Jesus repeats this in many ways in different places, but he tells us, I'm not here to judge, I'm here to love, I'm here to rescue. Now, this was a hard passage for me because I grew up in a church that I felt like that's all we do is talk about God's judgment and everybody's judging each other. Everybody's got it figured out for how bad the other person is. And I remember being in fourth grade and I, um, for the first time, did what I hope many of you will do when you come to a place where you're like, I really believe Jesus is who he says he is. And they told us, when you come to that place, you ought to talk about it. I remember talking to my friend about who I believe Jesus was. I lived in this little, uh, well, over in Humble. It was one of these, if you're a Houstonian, you know what this is like. It was gonna be a subdivision, and they built a street, and then it kind of stopped there, right? So it was just like, (laughs) it just kind of blew up. So then it was like, well, we'll sell this land, and they'll do a Buddhist temple, and then next to it was a trailer park. And and my buddy Adam lived in the trailer park next to our, what was gonna be a subdivision, but ended up being a street. And, Adam's life was just really different than mine. He was just, he was a really fun kid. He was my age, a fun kid to hang out with. But I remember going over to his house and it didn't take me but a couple of visits to realize like his life and family was really different than mine. They they talked to each other in different ways. They used words at the table we were never allowed to use. Like we couldn't say those words. At my house, we had a lot of like Bibles and Christian books. At his house, his dad's favorite magazine was published by Hugh Hefner. They were everywhere, right? I was like, this is very different than my house. And I remember doing what I was taught to do, which is just, I just tell Adam, like, this is who I believe Jesus is. And I really learned I love Jesus, Jesus loves me, and that if I devote myself to, he forgives me, and, and I'm learning and growing in my faith. I just tell him about Jesus, and at some point he's like, if that's what Christianity really is, like, I, I'd like, I think I wanna be a Christian. So I was like, I knew enough to know. I was like, I think we're supposed to pray. So we prayed, right? I'm like, dude, you're a Christian. You should come to church with me, right? Seemed like a good idea. He's like, okay, I'll come to church with you. And so for six weeks, my buddy Adam came to church with me. Now my buddy Adam, his house was different. His life was different. When the Sunday school teachers heard the words that they use at home, they didn't like it. He said some things and did some things they didn't like. And at the end of six weeks, it was a week after Easter, my friend Adam said, hey, I still believe the stuff you told me about Jesus, but I'm not going back to your church anymore. He said, those people hate me. He said, even the way they look at me, it just, I'm not going back to your church, okay? Now, I was fourth grade. I didn't know I was gonna be a pastor. But I remember thinking, if I could be a part of a church that took seriously what Jesus said, that I didn't come to judge, 
And by now you probably figured out like if Jesus didn't come to judge, you and I don't get to, right? Like Jesus is the only one that could judge and he said, I didn't come to judge, I came to love and to rescue. And so surely if Jesus said, I'm not gonna judge, then we're not the ones to judge. And he gets really clear in a bunch of passages. Like that's just not what you should do. It won't do anybody any good. And so I decided then I wanted to be a part of a community and gratefully, we're not perfect, but we're gonna commit to be this community where we just say, we're not gonna judge people and you can be where you are. Now that doesn't mean, right, if you're a jerk, you ought to stay a jerk forever, right? I mean, you ought to be in a community where people are like, I love you in your jerky place, but I hope you don't stay there forever. And I hope you grow. And that's something we ought to aspire towards. And in recent years, I've been reminded, I think of my friend Adam often because I'm, uh, I'm friends with him, been in some settings with uh, this really well-known theologian, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. He taught at Duke for many years. And Stanley Hauerwas is, uh, he's written dozens and dozens of books. He's probably the uh, premier Christian ethicist, talking about Christian ethics uh, to the world. And, um, and Stanley Hauerwas is also well known for just like, he uses a lot of foul language, like a lot. And um, so Stanley Hauerwas is a great person to come preach at your church, but most of the time he'll come preach at your church and people will be like, hey, that was really good. You're never coming back. Um, <laughs> Like people don't cuss like that at our church. Like they just don't do that. But this is the thing for Stanley Hauerwas. And I think it's rooted in this thing he teaches in Christian ethics. This is what he says when he does a semester long course on Christian ethics. At the beginning of the year in the first class, this is what he says. If I had to summarize Christian ethics for you, this is it. Christians don't lie. They tell the truth. And by that, I think he doesn't just mean we don't tell lies like has become so common in our culture. But he says, we're not duplicitous. We're not gonna be different people in one place than we are in the other. So Stanley's kind of like, my wife hates the way I talk too and you hate the way I talk, but this is just kind of the way I talk, right? Now at some point, we are all gonna grow in some of those things. But I realize I wanna be a part of a community where people live who they are and we grow together along the way. Peter had the opportunity to do that because he was in community with Jesus. And so what we see is that Peter had this failure, but what happens often with us is we have a failure and it turns into this bonfire of shame. We just have one failure and it just grows and grows. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it becomes this shame bonfire and it overwhelms us. And this is the thing, you need to know this. You've failed, you've double booked, you've no-showed and worse. You've lied, you've missed your test, whatever it is you want to think of in those places. And when you fail, right, you end up with this massive shame fire in the places where secrecy and silence and judgment are present. If you've got secrecy, silence, and judgment, shame's just going to rage. And you're going to start hearing voices inside your head. That judgment sometimes is external, but it's often internal. And it's you telling you, I'm not good enough. I blew it, I should have done better, I knew better. And it just grows and grows and grows. And the only thing that can put out a shame fire, the only antidote is exactly what Jesus offered to Peter. He leans in in the place of his failure. And in that failure, right, he does what for all of us, whatever you're gonna do if you wanna show love to somebody, I think the best way to express love is what Jesus did. What did he do? He cooked for him, right? I only know you love me if I can taste it, right? <laughs> if 
I can taste it, then I know you love me. You make me tamales that I can eat at 2 a.m. when I'm depressed, right? That's better than any Prozac you've ever found. Try it, try it. Just seriously, 2 a.m., you're having a bad night, eat a tamale and see what happens. If it's made by a little grandmother in Houston, Texas, you will feel loved, right? And Jesus knew, like, if, Peter, if Peter's gonna feel my love, the best thing I can do for him is make him this fish taco. Is this pita bread, not quite a tortilla, but it looked, for us, just like a fish taco. We put fish in it, and he served it to him. And what's he saying when he feeds Peter? He's saying, I love you, Peter. And he gives Peter the chance to say back to him. Peter already knew that Jesus loved him. But Peter gets to say, I love you, Jesus. And I'm going to do as you ask me to do. And what, what Jesus does in that moment is he leans in with the only thing that I think stops our shame in its tracks. He leans in with compassion and with empathy and with this beautiful Christian attribute of unconditional love. And in that place, he's made whole, right? And Peter becomes whole again because he's experienced this unconditional love. If you've got anybody in your life that loves you unconditionally, it is the greatest gift. For some of us, it'll only be our moms, period. There's nobody else. <laughs> but literally, you're like, if you're on death row and you did something really bad, your mom will show up, right? You got one person, and they're just literally like, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, I love you. And when Jesus loves Peter like that, it frees him up to be who he's made to be. And he abandons the shame that had him caught and trapped and this is what happens when Jesus leans in and we experience that shame is replaced with love and we become whole again. Part of what happens, three things I want to point out and then I want to read to you a passage from Peter. Three things happen. The first is when you see that shame erased, you lean into Jesus' love, you're not afraid of anyone. You just don't fear people. This, that you used to be paralyzed by it, and all of a sudden, Peter, who was like denying him because he didn't want strangers to think bad of him, he was scared, he was on the run, all of a sudden, Peter's transformed, and he'll go anywhere and tell people about the gospel. He's preaching before thousands of people, right? And he's literally like, at some point, they're going to kill me, but until they kill me, this is what I'm going to do. And he's just not afraid of people anymore. And I'm telling you, Ecclesia, if we can get to the place that we're not afraid of people, really beautiful things happen. The second thing is that we come into this place where you're not afraid to fail. I think I'm especially concerned for young people in our day and age because of the way that we live on social media, the pressures around academics. People are afraid to fail. This is what you need to know. Anybody you know that's a success, that's done anything with their life, it's all been built on failure. It's in the places that we failed that beautiful things have happened. And if you get to this place that you're afraid to fail, what's gonna happen is you're not gonna do anything. And what we wanna do, we wanna be the kind of community that says, let's try anything. If we fail, we fail. It's okay, we'll be all right. But it's in that failure, we're gonna build on something really beautiful and new. Lastly, what we see with Peter is that when you experience uh, Jesus' love and you lose your same, the approval of Jesus becomes the only thing that matters, right? People get really big, people get really small, and God gets really big. And when God's really big and all that matters is, I'm doing what God wants me to do. Everybody else in the world can hate it, and it doesn't matter. You live in this place, you go, this is who I'm made to be, this is what I'm made to do, this is what I'm up to, and you have this clarity that is a gift. What I really wanted to do for Easter is then lead you through 
Peter's epistles. There's, there's two of them, and they got multiple chapters, but this is the seventh of seven Easter services, so I decided we don't really have the time to take you through all the epistles. So what I'm offering to you instead is a short part of what I think is the most practical, it may be the most practical passage in all the Bible. Peter offers it in the first chapter of 2 Peter. And, um, and in some ways, I, what I'm inviting you to do is to consider this a bit of a map, or really it's more like a recipe, what you're gonna hear Peter say. You could literally put this on a recipe card at home. It's take this, add this, add this, add this, mix it together, and it's gonna be a really good life. And some passages are just not this simple, but this just gives you some really great things to build on. This is what he says in 2 Peter. He says, I wish you a full measure of grace and peace as you grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I don't know if you think about your life, your relationships, your marriage, your family, but if you're in this place and you're like, you've got a full measure of grace, you're showing grace to other people and to yourself, and you've got a full measure of peace, that's a pretty good life. Peter said, that's what I wish for you. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need to experience life and to reflect God's true nature through the knowledge of the one who called us by his glory and virtue. He's saying, we're made to reflect God's image. We're made in his image to reflect it back to the world and you've got everything you need to do it. So through these things that I'm about to tell you, we've received God's great and valuable promises so we might escape the corruption of, a worldly, desi of worldly desires and share in the divine nature. That's the crosswords we're, crossroads we're always at. We're either deciding, are we gonna follow God's path? Or are, we, are we obsessed with the things of this world? It's always an either or and there's rarely any kind of middle road. You just can't go in the middle. You gotta choose between the two. And he says, to achieve this, this is what you'll need. And this is his little recipe. And I just think it's beautiful and wise and insightful. And post-Easter, if you'll just go, hey, I'm gonna do this, I think it's gonna really bear great fruit for you. This is what he says. He says, if you wanna do this, you'll need to add virtue to your faith. What's the, what's the recipe start with? It starts with faith. However much that you have. Some of you are like, I got a lot of faith. Some of you are like, it kind of wavers. Even on Good Friday, we were here praying like, God, help me with my unbelief. And that's a really spiritual prayer, by the way. It's like, I've got unbelief. God, would you help me to believe? Perfectly fine. The greatest belief often in faith comes in that place. So he says, take whatever faith you have. He says, even a mustard seed, Jesus reminds us, can do amazing things. The smallest amount of faith. Take your faith and add some virtue to it. What's virtue? It's this commitment to do the right thing. If you got a little faith and you just go, I'm going to be committed to do what's right. He says, that's a pretty good place to start. Start with faith and then virtue. And then he says, then to that virtue, you could add knowledge. What if you just decided like, you know what, this year I'm gonna read the Bible a little bit. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick up a few books. I'm gonna grow in my knowledge and understanding of faith in the world. And you know, study physics. It helps you understand the world God made. It's beautiful. I'm just gonna become, I'm gonna get more knowledge. He says, that'd be really great. If to virtue and faith, you added knowledge, that'd be good. And then to that, if you added discipline, what we all need, just this commitment to go, hey, you know what, every day I'm gonna get up in an hour and I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the Bible, I'm gonna take times to pray, I'm gonna go on a little prayer walk, I, I'm gonna fast once a month, I'm, I'm gonna abstain on the weekends from the internet because I've just learned if I'm on the internet all weekend, I, I don't go to church sometimes and I'm focused on the wrong things and I, I'm gonna have some discipline in my spiritual life. Peter says, hey, that'd be a great idea, add discipline. Then he says from there, he says, the next thing you could add would be endurance. 
You just commit to when it gets hard because this is the thing for many of you. You do faith well when you feel like it. And, it, and Peter's like, hey, that doesn't always work because you know what? You don't always feel like it. But if you'd have this endurance to say, I'm going to commit to do what's right and follow Jesus even when it's a little harder. I'm going to get myself to church. I'm going to lean in and take communion. I'm going to pray because I really think in that endurance some good things will happen. Then he says, from that you could add godliness. I'm going to become a bit more like Jesus. Seek to uh, live out his attributes. And then he said, from there it'd be awesome if you just liked people. He said, if you just had affection for people. Now, this is, this is sometimes hard to do because we live in this consumer culture and we want something for people. And what if people were just always people and you just decide, I like everybody. I'm just gonna like, you're ever around somebody and they like everybody. They sit down with a waiter and they wanna get to know them. Whether the waiter delivers good service or bad service, they're just like, I'm just, I wanna get to know, I wanna be kind to them. What happens when you're around those people? You wanna be around them more. Anybody around somebody, they don't like anybody. They don't like kids, they don't like babies. You're like, you don't want to be around them. Peter says, hey, if you could add affection to others, that'd be great. And then he goes, what else could you add? You could just add love. If you were loving. And then he says, if you put all these things in the recipe of your life, you started to add them together. He said, to achieve this, he, he says, for if you possess these traits, next slide, and multiply them, then you will never be ineffective or unproductive in your relationship with our Lord Jesus, the anointed. Now that's an amazing promise. Hear this Ecclesia, don't let it just pass by you. He says, if you would add these things, you'd always be really close and productive in your relationship with the Lord. Now you may say, that sounds nice. No, listen, if, if you're close to Jesus, nothing else will matter. Every, all the other problems will be put in their place. If you feel near to the one who made you and knows you, and controls the universe, it puts everything in its place. He says, then you'll never, right? Never be ineffective or unproductive in your relationship with the Lord Jesus, the anointed. But if you don't have these qualities, then you will be nearsighted and blind. What's he saying? He's saying, without those qualities, all you're gonna see is what's right here. And what do you usually see with what's right here? The problems. Now, I don't know about you, anybody's like, that's kind of the life I'm living. All I see are the problems right in front of me. And what happens when we live a life of faith that takes on these attributes, we see past it. And then he explains, he says, and this, in that you won't forget, right? Forgetting that your past sins have been washed away. Of all people to say that, for Peter to say, hey, I can do all this because my sins have been washed away. I'm freed up to do that. He makes it really simple, right? He just says, take some faith and to faith, add some virtue. And to virtue, this commitment to do the right thing. And to virtue, you could add, just add some knowledge. And to knowledge, you could add some discipline. Just commit to be disciplined. And to discipline, you could add some endurance. And to endurance, you could add some godliness. And to godliness, you could add some affection for other people. And then if you put some love in there, he goes, that'd be a really good life. So I don't know, Ecclesia, we don't wanna make it too complicated. But following Jesus is really about trusting him. I'm not saying, you know what, I want to lean into that kind of life. And I want to know Jesus and walk with him. And I don't know what's happening with you or what's going on in your life. But I want to invite you into the kind of community that God longs for us to have at Ecclesia, where we say, we're not going to be a people that judge other people. We just don't think there's any fruit that's going to come from that. If Jesus didn't come to judge, then surely we shouldn't. But if we lean in together and bring out the best in each other in these ways, 
and we serve the city and the world, we think that's a really good life. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.